0: Hello, this is William Fink and this is Chris at Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 22nd, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Evidently, it is rather easy for some people to hear a definition of a word or actually define a word for themselves that allows them to remain comfortable with some wicked idea. And then they use their device to support a lie, and spread that device and that lie without shame. But these people even claim Strong's concordance as their authority on the matter. I've encountered this recently from several people, actually two people in the last several weeks, and a third a few months ago, and I found a couple of them lying in regard to the word bastard. Evidently, evidently some Jew from Chicago, perhaps pretending to be a Christian identity pastor, has been telling people that a bastard, a mamzer in Hebrew, is only and specifically a person born of an Israelite or even a Jewish father and a heathen mother, and nothing else. I have never heard anything so absurd. If that were the case where Yahweh tells the Philistines in a prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 9, which we are going to present here this evening, that a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod. Then it would be evident that Yahweh was advocating race mixing among Israelite men. That is basically blasphemous to insist that Yahweh would advocate such a thing. But that is only the beginning of the problems with their definition. That is only the beginning of the problems and conflicts that such an idea would cause in Scripture. However, it is simply not the case. Let us read the entire definition from Strong's Concordance. James Strong, in his entry for the Hebrew word mamzer. Strong's number 4464 says that the word is from an unused root, meaning to alienate a mongrel, i.e., or id est, born of a Jewish father and a heathen mother. And that's where they get, that's where these contenders get their idea of the definition for bastard, and they're trying to spread it throughout Christian identity, that a bastard is only one born of an Israelite father, and a heathen mother, or a non-white mother. And of course, Strong evidently thought that the Israelites were Jews, and that Jews were Israelites, which of course is not true. But where Strong said I.E. in his definition, He was only giving an example, since IE is short for the Latin phrase id est, which is literally that is, and which is a phrase used in English to state something further, which clarifies a previous statement. But that doesn't mean that the definition is limited to that. So the sentence... Where Strong wrote, born of a Jewish father and a heathen mother, is not a part of the definition, the definition of Mamser, but rather it was included by Strong only as an explanation of what a bastard is, which is defined by Strong as a mongrel. A mongrel is generally defined as a dog of no definable type or breed or as any other animal resulting from the crossing of different breeds or types or regarding people as a person of mixed descent that definition those three definitions are right from google they're easy to find so the word bastard comes from a hebrew verb according to Strong, which is not found in scripture, for which reason Strong called it, quote-unquote, an unused root, but which means to alienate. If we read the accounts of Jacob and Esau in Genesis, it is evident that Esau's having taken foreign wives caused him to be alienated from his mother. And ultimately, for that reason, his mother made certain that Esau was alienated from his birthright. So Paul, writing in his epistle to the Hebrews many years later, called Esau a profane man and a fornicator, as Jude defines fornication, and as Paul himself used the term in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As Jude defines fornication, it is the pursuit of different flesh. And that is exactly what Esau did. A bastard is a mongrel. A bastard is illegitimate. Because the law of God defines marriage as a union between a man and a woman who are of the same bone and the same flesh which is the law of God in Genesis chapter 2. Kind after kind, also being in the law, when a man takes a wife who is not of his flesh, he is committing fornication, and if he has children within such a union, he is creating bastards. And the same law for the man also applies to the woman who would do such a thing. Anyone who tries to redefine the word bastard as anything other than a mixed-race individual is a liar and a double-minded man. A man with an agenda and with no care for the truth. So take that back to your chubby little rabbi in Chicago who taught you that lie. And with that, we will present... Part 6 of our series on the Prophecy of Zechariah, and this segment just happens to be subtitled, Burdens and Bastards. Discussing the previous eight chapters of this Prophecy of Zechariah, we hope to have established that they are actually a series of rather profound but complex prophetic visions which have two purposes. First, in the interpretation which we call the Near Vision, they are a prophecy of the immediate circumstances of the building of the temple and the founding of the 70 Weeks Kingdom. But more importantly, in the interpretation which we call the Far Vision, the Transcendental Interpretation, they are prophetic of the ministry of Christ and the building of the body of Christ, which is the true temple of Yahweh. As we also hope to have seen, or to have made evident, this true temple was to be built in the captivity of the woman in judgment, in the gathering of scattered Israel through Yahshua Christ, in order to reconcile them to Yahweh their God. The purpose of the second temple and the seventy weeks kingdom was to produce and herald the Messiah. And the overall purpose of Zechariah's prophecy was to foretell some of the events and circumstances and purposes of his coming. These prophecies of the scattering and subsequent gathering of Israel and the reconciliation of the children of God through Christ culminated in the last passage of Zechariah chapter 8 there we see a clear prophecy of the spread of the gospel of Christ where it says, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all the languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Judahite, not a Jew, but a Judahite, saying, We will go with you, For we have heard that God is with you. We have asserted that the ten men must be representative of the scattered so-called ten lost tribes, and that he who is a Judahite or a Judean must be a reference to the apostles of Christ. Here, as we commence with our commentary with Zechariah chapter 9, The chapter division may imply that what we are about to see is distinct from what we had seen in the previous chapter. However, that is not necessarily the case. It is really just an extension of what we have seen in the words before this. The burden of Yahweh in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof. When the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward Yahweh. All the tribes of Israel required a gospel in order to turn their attention back towards Yahweh. And that gospel was prophesied in the previous chapter. At this point in history in the word of Yahweh our God the word man used here by the translators to represent the Hebrew word Adam describes the people of the tribes of the children of Israel where we where we read here in verse 1 when the eyes of man as of all the tribes of Israel shall be toward the Lord we cannot imagine that anyone but the tribes of Israel are included in such a thought. Simply because the word man may be used to describe something different today, does not mean that the word of Yahweh intended anything but the children of Israel, when he used the word Adam here, as he himself explains in the language employed here by the prophet. When the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, Shall be toward Yahweh. We may errantly believe that bastards are men, but as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, nevertheless the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. He knows the difference between sons and bastards, sheep and goats. He tells us explicitly those differences in scripture. If you can't get it, well, we should rejoice in our God that he gets it. That's what Paul is telling us. Because you're not going to be the judge of the world. Here we see an oracle given by Yahweh to various cities of the Levant, which were within proximity to ancient Jerusalem. Most of these cities are known from the Old Testament histories, and they seem to have still been prosperous at the time of the prophet, which was in the Persian period. There is one exception, and that is Hadrach. There is no place of that name known in scripture, or in any recorded history dating from the classical, Hellenistic, or later periods, and therefore... The interpretations of this name are disputed by scholars, not by us, but by scholars, or those pretending to be scholars. The word Hadrach is Sedrach in the Septuagint, which also happens to be the same as the Greek form of the name of one of Daniel's companions, for which the King James Version has Shadrach. The copy found in the Dead Sea Scrolls is missing this important portion of the verse, but the spelling of the word as it is found in the Latin Vulgate agrees with the Masoretic text, and that is the spelling which we would choose to follow. James Strong's Hebrew Dictionary informs us that the word hadrach is of uncertain derivation and refers to a Syrian deity or idol where he seems to be only guessing however as George Rawlinson and some later scholars have identified it the name seems to be a reference to Hatarica, a city of northern Syria mentioned in certain inscriptions as early as the 8th century BC Hatarica, which could easily be Hadrach being converted to Hebrew from Assyrian and then into English from Hebrew, Hadarica appears in an inscription translated in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, published at Princeton University in 1969 on pages 655 and 656. In that inscription, it is recorded that Hadarica was besieged by the armies of ten kings. Among them are Bar-Hadad, the son, and, and that could be Ben-Hadad as well. bar the son of Hazael, king of Aram, who is known from scripture, along with the kings of Miletus, Calycia, and other cities. The city was defended by its ruler, Zakir, the king of Hamath, who later enlarged it. According to several online dictionaries which cite George Rawlinson's ancient monuments, Rawlinson would identify Hadrak or Haderica with Edessa. He mentions that in the Assyrian inscriptions it is recorded, that Shalmenazar III made two expeditions, the first against Damascus, 773 BC, and the second against Hadrach in 772 BC. And again, that Ashurdanin il the second, the Assyrian king, made expeditions against Hadrach, or Hadarika, in BC 765 and 755. However, rather than Edessa, and is another inscription which George Rawlinson did not live to see. Hatterika is better identified with the archaeological site of Tel Athus, which is near Aleppo in northern Syria, which is quite far south-southeast of Edessa. The inscription mentioning Hatterica, which we have just described, was found on a stelae set up by Zakir, the king of Hamath, after his successful defense of the city. And the inscription was discovered at Tel Afis in 1903. Rawlinson died in 1902 and never saw the inscription which would have caused him to change his identity identification of the place. James Strong died in the 1880s, so neither did he have the benefit of this information from later archaeology. So when we read these books, we always have to consider when they were written and research whether any newer knowledge had come out, because archaeology is... A constantly a, a a science that's constantly causing us to change our assessment of the past when we find dug out of the ground facts that we did not know before we are persuaded that Haterica or Hadrach, was unknown because the cities of Assyria were all destroyed by the Babylonians and then by the Scythians, or by the Scythians and then by the Babylonians, I'm sorry. Hadrak was unknown by the Hellenistic period, and therefore it was also unknown to the Septuagint translators and could not be properly identified. We can imagine that mentioned along with Damascus and Hamath, Hadrak refers to the Hatterica of the ancient inscriptions, but that is not the end of our interpretation, and we will put it on hold until we explain this. And first we shall repeat the passage, so we may comment on the other aspects of it. The burden of the word of Yahweh in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof, when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward Yahweh. These verses seem to have a meaning in different dimensions. While we shall see the near-term fulfillment of the overall prophecy certainly had an impact on ancient Palestine, There also seems to be a message in the names of some of the places mentioned. When we presented the prophecy of Micah, here a few short years ago, we explained that same thing in relation to portions of his prophecy in part two of our presentation of Micah, that certain towns in those areas upon which Yahweh had decreed judgment were singled out because their names had meanings which also offered another dimension to the message in the prophecy. Here we shall examine that same possibility and get on with our interpretation of verse 1 and the first half of verse 2 which we have not read yet. Both Damascus and and Hamath were under the control of ancient Israel from the days of King David until the Assyrian expansion and conquests of the 9th and 8th centuries BC. Hadrach was near to Hamath as we just saw from the inscriptions and we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 8 that Solomon had built armories called store cities near to Hamath Hadrach, we believe, we have every good reason to believe, was one of those store cities. We see in 2 Kings 14.28 that Israel had lost control of these cities, but they were recovered in the time of Jeroboam 1, around the end of the 10th century. So Damascus, Hamath, and ostensibly Hadrak as well, or Hadarica if you will, were cities in Syria that were once controlled and occupied by Israelites. But Hamath and its cities, which would include Hadrach, were conquered by the Assyrians. The people rebelled in the time of Sargon II, the Assyrian king who also destroyed Samaria, and they were also deported northward. The population of Hamath was then evidently replaced by Sargon with Assyrians. There were also allusions to this conquering of Hamath, this fate of Hamath, in Isaiah 36.19 and Isaiah 37.13. But these things had all happened 200 years before Zechariah wrote. In the book of Amos, in chapter 5, we see Yahweh inform the children of Israel that for their sins will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus. Beyond Damascus are the regions of Assyria and the cities of the Medes where the children of Israel had been resettled by the Assyrians. And by the time of Zechariah, Assyria and its cities were destroyed. And many of the Sake, the deported tribes of Israel, were spread west through Armenia and Sakasene, and the areas of northern Syria and Anatolia. This is evident in the histories of Josephus, and in the accounts of the Scythians in these regions, which are described by Strabo and Diodorus Siculus. Certain modern Bible dictionaries inform us that hadrak means dwelling, but they offer little substantiation for the statement. However, if the Hebrew word is related to the Hebrew word hazer, and Hazaroth, because that letter Z was often interchangeable with both the T-S sound and the letter D. And we see that right in Latin and Greek, where Deus is the Latin word for God, and Zeus is the Greek word for their supreme God. And that's an early interchange of the letter D for the letter Z that is common between languages, between early Indo-European languages including Hebrew, which I would assert is indeed an Indo-European language, whether the Jews and their linguists like it or not. However, if the Hebrew word for Hadrach is related to the Hebrew word hazer and hazeroth, Strong's numbers 2690, 2691, 2698, Hazar and Hazaroth, as it seems to be, then it could indeed mean dwelling or settlement. The word Hazar describes an enclosure, such as a walled village, and therefore was used to describe a village or settlement. Hazaroth was one of the settlements of the children of Israel during the 40 years of wandering in the desert after the exodus. The name Damascus is said to mean, silent is the sackcloth weaver. It's actually from three Hebrew words. And sackcloth is related to repentance in scripture. I should say three Aramaic words, right? The Hebrew word for the name Hamath, which appears in verse 2, means fortress. In the first half of verse 2 here in Zechariah chapter 9 we read after it mentions Hadrak and Damascus and Hamath also shall border thereby now in reality Hadrak and Hamath were far north of Damascus these places Hadrak Damascus and Hamath are not being condemned in the prophecy here. Although the burden is for them, and there is no word against them, and there is no real prophecy for them, neither are they mentioned any further for them in particular, I should say. The burden has to do with all of these other cities which are going to be mentioned. Neither Are these places ever mentioned again any further in Zechariah's prophecy? So we must interpret the first two verses of this chapter in a somewhat different manner than as if the literal places are being addressed. Of the literal places, it makes no sense. Because Hamath and Hadrach were certainly not the cities that they were in the days of Israel. They were occupied by Assyrians. And the tribes of Israel, whose eyes will be on Yahweh, are not in Hadrach or in Hamath at this time. In Zechariah chapter 2, we saw another prophecy of Israel in captivity, where the prophet wrote, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith Yahweh, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and I will be the glory in the midst of her. Ho, ho, come forth, and flee from the land of the north, saith Yahweh, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven saith Yahweh and we explained how Jerusalem here could not be Jerusalem in Palestine and all the towns of Palestine including Jerusalem had walls and fortifications because the Hebrew word for Damascus is actually a phrase related to sackcloth And because the region beyond Damascus was used in Amos to represent the captivity of Israel, we may interpret the word allegorically. The same for Hedrach, which may mean dwelling, apparently, and Hamath, which means fortress, which in the perspective of the prophet are also beyond Damascus. So here we believe that the names of these places are being used as a message to the children of Israel, which is similar to that scene in Zechariah chapter 2. Here we believe that they are being informed in this prophecy, in this rather cryptic prophecy, that in the land of their dwelling, that their rest shall be in their captivity in the sackcloth of repentance they will find rest in the sackcloth of repentance and that they will be guarded by a fortress which in Zechariah chapter 2 is described as Yahweh himself then they are also being informed that in this place in the place of their captivity shall the eyes of all the tribes of Israel be upon Yahweh, which happened when they accepted the gospel of Christ. So the opening of this vision of Zechariah chapter 9 is for us a vision of the camp of the saints. But of the places mentioned in the subsequent verses There are oracles against some of them, and these places are some of the more notable of the remaining cities in Palestine. In the environs of the 70 Weeks Kingdom at Jerusalem, they are also, with the exception of Ekron, which was a little bit inland, all situated along the Mediterranean coast. So, continuing where we left off in the middle of verse 2, Tyrus and Sidon though it be very wise. And this seems to be the beginning of a new clause, and not the end of the old one. The mainland city of Tyre had already been destroyed by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, which is mentioned in retrospect in the later half of Ezekiel chapter 29. There is no direct oracle against Sidon here, But after the period of Solomon, Tyre remained independent of Israel, and Sidon was usually its tributary, or even a part of its kingdom. So the fate of the two cities was often related. Originally, both cities belonged to and were settled by the children of the tribe of Asher, although the Israelites had failed to drive all of the Canaanites out of Sidon as we see in Judges chapter 1, verse 31. Since along with Jerusalem itself, the mainland part of Tyre had lain in ruins since the destruction wrought by the Babylonians. The Tyrus being spoken of here is the island part of the city, which the Babylonians had not destroyed. And in verse 3 and verse 4, we read, And did build herself a stronghold, and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Behold, Yahweh will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. After the Babylonian period, The Tyrians were tributary to the Persians until the time of Alexander the Great. This prophecy is being recorded by Zechariah sometime around 518 BC. In the Persian wars against the Greeks that began with the Battle of Marathon around 490 BC, the Tyrians and Sidonians as well as the cities of the Philistines, who were also considered to be Phoenicians by the Greeks, by Herodotus. He counted Ascalon among the Phoenician cities all the time, and mentioned it very frequently. These cities were important shipbuilders, and supplied the Persian navy with the best of its sailors. According to Herodotus, When the Persians invaded Greece, they employed 2,500 ships, which were provided by the Tyrians and Sidonians and the other cities of the coast. At the same time, Carthage, a colony of Tyre, and subject to them as well, had invaded Sicily. This strategy prevented the Greeks of Sicily and Italy, who were more numerous than those of Greece, from assisting in the defense of their fatherland against the invading persians but in one day at the battle of salamis the entire persian fleet was destroyed by the greeks the athenians and spartans chiefly and most of its sailors would never return the persian king xerxes was said to have stood on the shores of attica helplessly watching his great navy sink to the bottom of the sea the naval power of tyre was greatly diminished at this time as it was indeed smitten in the sea only a short time after Zechariah's prophecy However, if Tyre suffered with the loss, the other seafaring cities of Palestine, which were employed by the Persians, must have suffered likewise. Tyre recovered to some degree. Nearly 150 years after the Persians failed in their conquest of Greece, Alexander the Great had utterly destroyed the island city. In a building project which lasted for nearly seven months, the Greeks had filled in a mole out to the island in order to besiege it. And when they took it, they raised it to the ground. The second century Greek historian, Arian, in his Anabasis of Alexander, describing the siege of Tyre by the Greeks, had said that the city was an island and defended on all sides with high walls. At that time, the balance of power by sea was in the favor of the Tyrians, since the Persians were still masters of the sea. Of course, the Persians were the lords of the Tyrians at the time, and the Tyrians had a large fleet ready for use. Arian went on to describe the Tyrian effort to impede Alexander's plans by sea, and how very successful they were. Alexander did not succeed until he collected a navy of his own from Sidon, which he had already taken, and Byblos, and the cities of the Greeks in the west and the north. However, no mention of Ascalon or Azotus are made in relation to these efforts. And we should bear this in mind as we discuss the prophecies related to those cities here in Zechariah chapter 9. And therefore, the seafaring power of the Philistines appears to be broken by this time, even though it's even mentioned in Isaiah that the Philistines were still a seafaring power as late as the 8th century BC. Later, where Josephus discussed Ascalon, or Azotus, the modern name, the the Hellenistic name for Ashdod. No mention is even made of ports there, and when in Antiquities Book 15 he described Herod's building of a large new port at Caesarea, which was formerly called Stratos Tower and which was far to the north of the cities of the Philistines, but not quite as far north as Tyre. He only mentions Joppa and Dora as smaller maritime cities on the routes to Egypt to the south. While the mainland city of Tyre was ultimately rebuilt and restored to grandeur in Roman times, The destruction of the island Fulfilled the prophecy found In Ezekiel chapter 26 Where the word of Yahweh said And I will make thee Like the top of a rock Thou shalt be a place To spread nets upon Thou shalt be built no more For I Yahweh have spoken it saith Yahweh God The prophet continues to discuss the nearby cities of the coast. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also, in reference to the smiting of Tyre. Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her her expectation, shall be ashamed. Ekron was never even really rebuilt. And the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited, and a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And that fully informs us that the Philistines were not bastards at this time and I will take away his blood out of his mouth, and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God, and he shall be as governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. Of course, the Jebusites no longer existed, or at least couldn't be identified. There is a similar prophecy in Zephaniah chapter 2 where it says, For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon, a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Akron shall be rooted up. Woe to the inhabitants of the sea coast, the nation of the Carathites, or mercenaries! The word of Yahweh is against you. O Canaan, the land of the Philistines, I will destroy even thee and that there shall be no inhabitant. And the sea coast shall be dwellings, and cottages for shepherds, and folds for flocks. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon. In the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down in the evening. For Yahweh their God shall visit them, and turn away their captivity. Here we must digress and discuss the nature of these prophecies at length, comparing the statements, briefly, in Zechariah and Zephaniah. From the time of the Maccabees, and even today, three of the four places mentioned here appear to be inhabited, and we will explain why we say they appear to be inhabited later on this evening. Those three places are Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Gaza. Only Ekron was no longer a city, never even mentioned by Josephus, and evidently the land was only sparsely inhabited in the days of the Maccabees, where it is known in one Maccabees from the Greek form of its name, Acheron. Ashkelon was destroyed by the Babylonians, and rebuilt under the Persians around the same time that Zerubbabel returned to Jerusalem. Ashdod was destroyed by the Babylonians and rebuilt along with Ashkelon. These cities benefited from the same policy of repatriation by which the people of Judah were permitted to return to Jerusalem in the days of Cyrus. Ashkelon was spelled Ascalon A-S-C-A-L-O-N in the Septuagint and Hellenistic writings at least in the English translations of them Ashdod became Azotus in those writings and Azotus is mentioned in Acts chapter 8 where Gaza is also mentioned however the sea power of the Philistines certainly seems to have been broken in the Persian period as we have seen And as Zephaniah had said, those places do seem to have become nothing more than dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks. Of course, Zephaniah wrote his prophecy a hundred years before Zechariah. So the statements he made were all literally fulfilled in the short term, but only in part. The part where it speaks of Judah and the seacoast was not yet fulfilled however Zechariah it will be in the time it was in the time of the Maccabees however Zechariah is prophesying very similar things to Zephaniah after these cities were destroyed and rebuilt so if three of these cities remained inhabited and if they are inhabited today how are these prophecies true Here it may become evident that these visions also have a near and a far fulfillment. But the far fulfillment is not fulfilled as many people may suspect. And many people may suspect that it was not fulfilled at all. In the period covered by the first book of Maccabees, which is from about 160 to about 129 B.C., Gaza, Ekron or Acheron, Ashkelon, and Ashdod or Azotus, as it was called, were all forcibly subjected to the people of Jerusalem. With this is the fulfillment of Zephaniah 2 7 and Zechariah 9 7, where it says that. He that remaineth, even he shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah. For example, in 1 Maccabees chapter 10, we read of Jonathan the high priest, that he had set fire on Azotus, or Rashdod, and the cities round about it, and took their spoils, and the temple of Dagon, with them that were fled into it, he burned with fire. Thus were there burned and slain with the sword, well near 8,000 men. In the next passage, the people of Ascalon are said to have surrendered themselves to him voluntarily. Shortly thereafter, it says that he came into the possession of Acheron, or Ekron, with the borders thereof. But there is no indication that Ekron was actually inhabited, and... It is only mentioned this one time in the book of Maccabees, and not at all in the histories of Josephus. So it was certainly of no account. In 1 Maccabees chapter 11, Ekron was actually rooted up. In 1 Maccabees chapter 11, we read of Ptolemy, the king of Egypt, entering Azotus, and it is written, And when he came near to Azotus, they showed him the temple of Dagon that was burnt, and Azotus and the suburbs thereof that were destroyed, and the bodies that were cast abroad, and then that he had burnt in the battle, for they had made heaps of them by the way where he should pass. Also they told the king whatsoever Jonathan, meaning the high priest at Jerusalem, had done to the intent that he might blame him, But the king held his peace. We also read in 1 Bacchabees chapter 11. Then Jonathan went forth, and passed through the cities beyond the water. And all the forces of Syria gathered themselves unto him, for to help him. And when he came to Ascalon, they of the city met him honorably. From whence he went to Gaza, but they of Gaza shut him out. Wherefore he laid siege unto unto it, and burned the suburbs thereof with fire, and spoiled them. Afterward, when they of Gaza made supplication unto Jonathan, he made peace with them, and took the sons of their chief men for hostages, a later Roman practice, and sent them to Jerusalem, and passed through the country unto Damascus. Gaza was broken down but not quite destroyed by the Maccabees and later it was rebuilt by the Romans. Then later on the Judeans came into the possession of Bezotus once again and we read in 1 Maccabees chapter 14 that as Simon became the high priest in place of Jonathan... He fortified the cities of Judea, together with Bethsura, that lieth upon the borders of Judea, where the armor of the enemies had been before. But he set a garrison of Judeans there. Moreover, he fortified Joppa, which lieth upon the sea, and Gedzerah, that bordereth upon Azotus, where the enemies had dwelt before. But he placed Judeans there, and furnished them with all things convenient for the reparation thereof. So we see the fate of Ashdod, Gaza, and Ekron, and they were all destroyed, and then, at least in part, they were inhabited by the people of Judah. And here it must be noted that there were no forced conversions to Judaism until after the period covered by 1 Maccabees had ended. Jonathan and Simon and those high priests before them did not forcibly convert anyone to Judaism. That policy began with John Hyrcanus, whose rule as high priest began after one Maccabees had ended. We only have records of his rule in Josephus' Antiquities, but they are very detailed. But Ashkelon, as we see here, voluntarily surrendered itself to the Judeans, and therefore it did not suffer destruction at this time. However, Ashkelon by this time, the time of the Maccabees, was not the Ashkelon of the Philistines. Evidently, it came to be inhabited by mixed races sometime during the Persian, or perhaps the early Hellenistic period. Flavius Josephus, writing in reference to the time of Pompey, which is probably around 70 BC, give or take a couple of years, had called the inhabitants of Ashkelon Arabians. This is seen in Wars of the Judeans, Book 1. Now, after Pompey was dead, Antipater, that's the father of Herod the Great, Herod the Jewish Edomite king, who the Jews like to call Herod the Great. Now after Pompey was dead, Antipater changed sides and cultivated a friendship with Caesar. And since Mithridates of Pergamus, with the forces he led against Egypt, was excluded from the avenues about Pelusium, he was forced to stay at Ascalon. He persuaded the Arabians, among whom he had lived, to assist him. He stayed at Ascalon, and he persuaded the Arabians among whom he had lived to assist him, and came himself to him at the head of three thousand armed men. Antipater aligns himself with Caesar, and collects a force of three thousand men at Ascalon, which he got from the Arabians the same was true of the other cities the inhabitants were no longer Philistines by the time of the Maccabees but under the rule of the Persians and Greeks they were joined or replaced by Edomites Canaanites and others and any ethnic barriers which existed before time had been dissolved of these four cities our prophets say that first of Ashkelon that it shall not be inhabited, and that it shall be a desolation. Then of Ashdod, that a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and they shall drive out Ashdod, evidently referring to the Philistines at Ashdod, at the noonday. Then of Ekron, that apparently it would be as a Jebusite, and it shall be rooted up. And finally, of Gaza, that the king shall perish from Gaza, and Gaza shall be forsaken. On the surface of history, history as it is generally perceived by people who really don't have a scriptural and racial foundation. On the surface of history, It seems that Ashkelon remained inhabited until the 12th century AD when it was destroyed during the Crusades by Saladin although it had never been occupied by Crusaders. Then the Mamluk dynasty of Egypt destroyed it again for good nearly a century later. From that time it remained only a small village until it was taken by the Jews and rebuilt in recent decades. Ashdod was rebuilt by the Romans as a Zotus. and when it came under the rule of Herod, he gifted it to his Edomite sister, Salome. It was garrisoned by Vespasian, but it was never destroyed. It had a Christian presence under the Byzantines, and evidently was the site of a coastal fort from the 7th century under the Muslims. I don't know how much of a Christian presence it had, Under the Byzantines. And we will get to that. In a few moments. However. With all that. In 1596. The Ottomans. Under the Ottomans. The population of Azotus. Or Ashdod. Was said to be. Only just over 400 persons. And in the 1922 British census. It was only just over 5,100 persons. The modern Jewish city bearing the name Ashdod in Palestine was built on a different but nearby site in 1956. Ekron was never rebuilt. Today it is only a site for archaeological excavation on a mound known as Tel Mykna, so far as can be determined from an inscription dated to the 6th century, which was discovered in 1996 Gaza rebuilt by the Romans flourished until the 7th century when it became the first city of the Levant to fall to the Muslims by the time of the Crusades in the 11th century the city had already fell to ruins and was reduced to the size of a village it was rebuilt under the Ottomans and the modern city was established in the 1890s With all of this background, perhaps we should repeat the words of Zechariah concerning these cities, before we comment on them further. Ashkelon, speaking of the destruction of Tyre, Ashkelon shall see it in fear, Gaza also shall see it, and be sorrowful, and Ekron, for her expectation, shall be ashamed, and the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth. And his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God. And he shall be as a governor in Judah. And Ekron as a Jebusite. The Hebrew word for Arab is from a verb meaning to grow dusky Strong's number 6150 or to commingle Strong's number 6151 Ostensibly, when white people commingle they grow dusky This is especially true when it is used to people and even the King James translators recognize this as the word Arab Appears of the mixed multitude in Exodus chapter 12 and Nehemiah chapter 13. So we have seen from the histories of Josephus that Arabians, or bastards, were dwelling in Ashkelon. And the same fate must also have been suffered at that early time by Ashdod and the rest of these cities, since they are all formerly the cities of the same Philistines. Yet he that remaineth, even he shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah. Or, as it said in Zephaniah's version of the prophecy, the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon. In the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening, for Yahweh their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. The people of Ashkelon were very friendly to the people of Jerusalem, and we would like to think that perhaps a remnant of Judah dwelt there. But Josephus called them Arabians, so we stay away from that in our notes. That's just a side observation. Zephaniah's prophecy was fulfilled during the period of the 70 weeks kingdom where the remnant of Judah remained in the land for the express purpose of bringing forth the Messiah Yahshua Christ who would turn away their captivity as he says here and they possessed these cities of the Philistines as we have seen in the book of Maccabees it may be argued that these were christian cities for a long time until the muslim conquest of the seventh century but that is not true at all it is a simple-minded perception of history christianity was not the official religion of rome until the end of the fourth century and until that time most romans were never christians paganism was not fully removed from the government at least officially, until the end of the 5th century. During these centuries, most Romans and most of the people of the pagan provinces were still not Christians, even if from that time onward a Christian presence began to appear in most cities. So it cannot be said with confidence that the non-Judean and non-Syrian populations of the Levant were ever Christian in any great degree before the Muslim conquest. In all the writings of the early Christian church fathers, or Ante-Nicene and Nicene fathers as they are called, there are no post-biblical references to either Ashkelon or to Ashdod, and only a passing mention in some Syriac documents of one Christian martyr in Gaza, whose name was Timotheus. One Christian martyr does not make Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ashdod into Christian cities. It may be argued, by the simple minded that the prophecy had failed because these three cities Ashdod, Ashkelon and Gaza appear to be inhabited throughout most of the last 2500 years and they are all large cities again today but these cities are certainly not inhabited in the eyes of God not when they have bastards living in them that's what Christians just don't get it needs to be beat into their heads here is where the word of god is either truly believed or denied even by most people who profess themselves to be christians if these cities have large populations of people in them today are they truly inhabited in the eyes of god perhaps they're inhabited by beasts are they inhabited if god himself at the very beginning of this chapter of prophecy had equated the word adam or man to the people of the tribes of israel are bastards truly men in the eyes of god christians have been failing in this perspective for two thousand years and they still fail for example Paul of Tarsus gives us two alternatives, two possible classifications for people. In Hebrews chapter 12, where he said, But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, all are partakers, well, all who? All men, because evidently Paul's referring to men that are without chastisement, or at least two people if we want to call them that, who are without chastisement. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. One is either a child of Yahweh God, of the true children of Israel, a man, as defined by God, or one is a bastard. Paul gives no third choice where Yahweh said that a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. How can we have so many white people walking around today, proud of their little bastards? The, the Philistines certainly wouldn't want to be proud when a bastard was living in Ashdod. It was cut off. Their pride was cut off, because a bastard would dwell in Ashdod. And Yahweh decreed that for the pride of the Philistines, they would be punished and their cities would be inhabited by bastards. And if, as Josephus had told us, Ashkelon was inhabited by Arabians, then the prophecy was fulfilled in his day. But with all certainty, by the time of the Muslim conquests, all of these places were being inhabited by Bastards, because all Arabs are bastards simply by the definition of their existence and their name. In modern times, the Jews, being Edomites, have returned to rebuild these desolate places, as it was prophesied for them to do in Malachi chapter 1. But these places are still inhabited by bastards because the Edomite Jews themselves are bastards, just as the modern Palestinians are bastards. So why should Christians have any care for these people? The Philistines were originally an Adamic people descended from Ham through Mitzrayim, according to Scripture Genesis ten fourteen. They were cursed here by Yahweh, whereby Ashdod and ostensibly the other cities of well as well, would come to be inhabited by bastards, people of mixed race. Therefore, along with the words of Paul to the Hebrews, and the law at Deuteronomy chapter 23, it is fully evident that to be a bastard is to be a curse upon God's Adamic people, which he created. If Christians embrace bastards, they are embracing little curses. Because the Christian nations have embraced bastards, today the bastards are overrunning the Christian nations. It is well past time that Christians must stop embracing the bastards. At the beginning of this chapter, the word Adam or man, was equated to the people of the tribes of the children of Israel. Then, a burden was pronounced upon Hamath, Hadrach, and Damascus, which we have explained must represent the captivity of the children of Israel. Then, there was a burden against Tyre. And we see that all of the sea power of the people of the Levant, those bastard people who remained in Palestine during and after the 70 Weeks Kingdom, was cut off. We can conjecture that this was another way that Yahweh acted as the protector, the wall of fire, as he describes it in Zechariah chapter 2, of the tribes of Israel. If his people were not allowed time to settle in their new lands and wax strong, as the prophecies in Micah chapter 4, Isaiah sixty six nineteen, and elsewhere explain, then they would not have been able to resist the spread of the bastard races, the flood which came from the mouth of the serpent. So the old sea powers of the Levant had to be broken in ancient times. And that certainly seems to be one of the purposes of this prophecy and the oracles against these cities of the coast. And with this, we shall finally resume with Zechariah chapter 9 from verse 8. And I will encamp mine house Because of the army Because of him that passeth by I will encamp and camp about mine house I'm sorry Meaning I will encamp around my house That wall of fire In Zechariah chapter 2 And I will encamp About mine house Because of the army Because of him that passeth by And because of him that returneth those Edomite Jews and no oppressor shall pass through them anymore for now have I seen with mine eyes and of course this prophecy has an apparent near term fulfillment in the rebuilding of Jerusalem but that fulfillment was also short lived within 450 years from the time when these words were written in 518 BC, the Edomites controlled Jerusalem, and it was ruled over by them as agents of the Roman Empire. Maybe it was 470 years. However, the actual subject of this prophecy is not merely the remnant of Judah, but all the tribes of Israel, which we saw in verse 1 and our interpretation of the purpose of the intervening oracles is vindicated. Here Yahweh promises to protect the camp of the saints because of the army of bastards. This is a messianic prophecy assuring all the tribes of Israel that they would be saved from their enemies that is why all the tribes of Israel are told that in the land of their dwelling, as we interpreted verse 1, they would find rest in their repentance, and God would be their fortress. The language here is quite similar to that which was spoken in reference to prophetic Jerusalem, to Zion in captivity, where it says in Zechariah chapter 2, And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, And said unto him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith Yahweh, will be under her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith Yahweh, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven saith Yahweh, deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon, meaning the children of Israel dwelling in captivity. And as we proceed to the next verse of this chapter of Zechariah, our contention that this is also a messianic prophecy is fully vindicated. Rejoice greatly! O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! The daughter of Zion cannot possibly be in Palestine at this time, and neither is the daughter of Jerusalem prophetically. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And of course this was fulfilled in the ministry of Christ, for which we will cite Matthew chapter 21, as Christ is about to enter Jerusalem in the last days of his ministry. And when they drew nigh, from the King James Version, and when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethphaga unto the Mount of Olives. Then sent Jesus to disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightaway, or immediately, you shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught or anything, unto you, ye shall say, The Lord has need of them, and straightaway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, Which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Sion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and the colt, and the colt the foal of an ass. And the disciples went, and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, others, cut down branches from the trees, and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before, and that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! The laying of garments and branches from the trees in the path of a coming king was apparently an ancient Eastern custom which reflected an acceptance of that king. When ancient Babylon had surrendered itself to Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he entered it victoriously, it is written in a surviving inscription commemorating the event, an inscription from the 6th century BC, that in the month of Arashamnu, the third day, Cyrus entered Babylon. Green twigs were spread in front of him. The state of peace was imposed upon the city. Cyrus sent greetings to all Babylon. That's found, that's found in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament on page 306. Column B, I believe. Cyrus had entered Babylon only about 21 years before Zechariah had written his prophecy of Christ. Of course, Christ could not make peace with Old Jerusalem, and instead, as it is reported by Matthew, he went to the temple and made war against the bankers and the merchants. Continuing with Zechariah in relation to this messianic prophecy, we shall encounter oracles which far transcend the time of the 70 weeks kingdom although no salvation for Israel was possible without the events which transpired during the time of that kingdom. Here we see a prophecy for all the tribes of Israel in relation to their ultimate salvation. And the focus is not upon the remnant of Judah, but rather it is upon the ten tribes of Israel, which were often referred to as Ephraim in prophecy, as they are throughout Hosea. And also in Ezekiel. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the nations, not the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. We have read nations here rather than Hebrew, and the Hebrew word is plural, as the scripture says, there is no peace to the wicked. Certainly, Yahweh does not mean to pronounce peace to bastards. In Ezekiel chapter 37, there are two sticks, one representing Judah and one representing Israel, which were prophesied to be joined into one stick. The stick representing Israel was also called Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Likewise, the ten northern tribes were referred to by the name of Ephraim through the entire prophecy of Hosea, because Ephraim was the birthright tribe of Joseph who received the double portion of the inheritance from Jacob. And fittingly, the capital city of Israel was in Samaria, the principal city of the tribe of Ephraim. So just as in the prophecy at the end of Zechariah chapter 8, the reference to the ten men represented the ten tribes of Israel. Here, towards the end of Zechariah chapter 9, the reference... to Ephraim, also represents the ten tribes of Israel. While they were considered ten tribes, it is also evident that many of Judah and Benjamin were among them in the captivity, while the remnant in Judea maintained the distinction of the two tribes. So the ten tribes of so-called lost Israel were really the substantial portion of all twelve. Yahweh did not cut off the chariot from Ephraim in ancient Jerusalem. Ephraim drove those chariots into Asia. And he has not yet done it. Because once they are properly identified in history as the Anglo-Saxons, it is evident that they still make war unto this day. Therefore, this prophecy will not be fulfilled until the second advent of the Christ, as we shall see. And in verse 11, we read, As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein there is no water. Turn you unto the stronghold, Yahweh being the fortress, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee because when they turn to Christ, ostensibly, he will return, and return double unto his people, as Babylon has taken from them. Those same tribes of the captivity are still being addressed here, and we see explicit terms in reference to Christ, where it says, by the blood of my covenant. This too is a prophecy of the blood which would be spilled in order to make possible the new covenant, which was the blood of Christ himself. Paul of Tarsus mentioned his blood three times in his epistle to the Hebrews. The first is in chapter 10 of the epistle, where it says, He despised Moses' law like when you lay with a beast and commit fornication and make bastards, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and is done despite under the spirit of grace. And we must add that one way that the blood of the covenant is counted as an unholy thing is by attempting to introduce it to bastards. Paul again mentioned the blood of the covenant in Hebrews chapter 12, where he referred to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, which was the blood of Christ as compared to the blood of oxes and asses under the Old Covenant. The blood of sprinkling is in reference to the sacrifice of Christ. Then, in chapter 13, in his final salutation, Paul prayed, Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. What the word of God says in Zechariah, by the blood of the covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein there is no water. It refers to the children of Israel in captivity, as Christ had quoted from Isaiah, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of Yahweh. For this reason also, Christ said in John chapter 7, He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This too was the fulfillment of prophecy concerning the captives of Israel in Isaiah chapter 43, where Yahweh said in reference to the children of Israel, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall ye not know it. I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 13, When I have bent Judah for me and filled the bow with Ephraim, And raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. And Yahweh is speaking of using Judah and Ephraim as his weapons of war. The reference to Greece here is not a reference to the Greeks. Rather, the Hebrew word is Javan. The word that we see of the descendants of Japheth in Genesis chapter 10. Javan, or Yavana, as the Persians called the Ionian Greeks. It's written in stone on the Behistun rock. The Hebrew word is Javan, and it is only a reference to the Ionians, which includes the Athenians, who were only a portion of the Greeks. The other principal tribes, the other principal Greek tribes of this time were the Dorians and the Macedonians. There were also Danans that had sort of faded into the background who both descended chiefly from the ancient Israelites and so did the Danans. After the Persian Wars had begun I'm sorry after the Persian Wars had ended the Peloponnesian Wars began, and the Spartans, who were Dorian Greeks, had fought with the Athenians for several decades. Then the Macedonians gained the primacy of Greece, and the old world of the Syrians and Assyrians, and also Egypt, and Thrace, until the coming of the Romans... And the Romans were also chiefly descended from the Israelites. Zechariah and the other Hebrews certainly would have been acquainted with the Greeks, with the Ionians, who kept residences in all the port cities of the Mediterranean by this time. They had strong presences at Tophanes in Egypt as well as in the cities of the Philistines and Phoenicians. In fact, in surviving fragments from the writings of the Greek lyric poetry of Alcaeus of Mytilene, who was writing around the same time as the conquests of Nebuchadnezzar in Palestine, he was born in 621 BC, there are references to Greek mercenaries among the armies of the Babylonians. Greeks were getting paid for fighting for Babylon against the cities of the Philistines on the coast, and probably against Jerusalem as well. Perhaps, however, in the overall scheme of the prophecy, Greece represents the worldly Adamic man, as opposed to the children of Israel called in obedience to God to follow the things of the Spirit. At this very time, the Greeks were about to found their classical civilization, which was based on worldly pagan philosophies and egalitarian and humanist principles. So the prophecy informs us that the children of Israel would prevail over the Ionians, and ultimately they did. And in verse 14, we read And Yahweh shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning and Yahweh our God shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with the whirlwinds of the south. The word used for south here, and we are still of the persuasion, and even of the assertion, that this prophecy is of the second coming of Christ, the ultimate deliverance of Ephraim and Judah. The word used for south here, teman, Strong's number 8486 in the phrase whirlwinds of the south can also be interpreted to mean on the right hand where the phrase may be read whirlwinds of the right hand when Christ returns the sheep are placed on his right hand and all others are goats which must go to the left to be cast into the fire reserved for the devils and his angels. The first clause of the verse which follows shows that the phrase, Whirlwinds of the right hand, refers to the children of Israel. Yahweh of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones, and they shall drink and make a noise as through wine, and they shall be filled like bowls." and as the corners of the altar. And Yahweh their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown, lifted up as an ensign upon his land. I should have looked into the meaning of that word wine to see if it could be translated beer. I'm kidding. Here it is also evident, as it is in Jeremiah 51, in Micah 4, in Isaiah 41, and other prophets, that Yahweh God would use the children of Israel to destroy the other nations. This is another prophecy right in the mold of Micah 4.13, Isaiah 41.15, Jeremiah 51.20, Revelation chapter 18, five, 6 However, where Zechariah had said here in verse 12, that turn you to the stronghold ye prisoners of hope even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee the language is similar to what is heard in Revelation chapter 18 of the fall of mystery Babylon and the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy will unfold in much that same manner the stronghold being Yahweh God himself when we turn to him Babylon will fall, and it's the children of Israel, and their turn to execute Yahweh's vengeance. Jeremiah chapter fifty one, verse twenty. Thou art my battle axe and weapons of war, for with thee will I break in pieces the nations, and with thee will I destroy kingdoms. Micah chapter four. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Isaiah chapter 43, from verse 14, Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith Yahweh, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. Thou shalt thresh the mountains, and beat them small, and shalt make the hills as as chaff. And in Revelation chapter 18, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not her plagues, for her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works, and the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. That's the double the children of Israel will be rewarded when they finally turn to their God. All four of these passages are related, and all will be fulfilled at the ultimate return of Christ, as it is described in Revelation chapter 19, concerning the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture, and on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies, gathered together to make war against him that sat on a horse and against his army. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the flesh, all the fowls, were filled with their flesh. Bastards are not counted as inhabitants. When bastards fill a city, it's a desolate city. Bastards are not counted as men, even though, because of the necessities of our language, they are sometimes called men. They aren't really men. They aren't Adam-man. They are not God's creations. And when Christ comes and sets the sheep on a right, the armies of heaven. There will be no goats among them. And when the goats are set on the left and headed for the leg of fire, so that all the fowls are filled with their flesh, there will be no sheep among them. And the passage concludes, For how great is His goodness, and how great is His beauty, Corn shall make the young men cheerful, and new wine the maids. And once all the armies of the bastards are eliminated, the children of Israel will enjoy these blessings, and praise Yahweh their God. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. And good night.